Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 89. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Back this week to discuss more Pirates of the Caribbean. We are doing the second film in the original trilogy, Dead Man's Chest. Well, I know that you have been excited to discuss Pirates of the Caribbean, as you told us last week, basically since the launch of the show. So I would imagine that when the sequel came out to your beloved Curse of the Black Pearl, you must have been bouncing off the walls. Absolutely. Because I had a group of friends that I worked with, and they were equally as obsessed as I was. So we did the whole thing. We did the midnight showing. At the time, um, my parents gave me their minivan, and that was like my my high school car. So we decorated the thing. We had the pirate flags going. We rode all over it. Captain Jack is back. We went in costume, like the whole nine. We couldn't have been more excited for this movie. Yeah, I went and saw Midnight Showing with my mom, actually, because this was one of these... The Curse of the Black Pearl was one of those movies where if it came on, we stopped what we were doing to watch it. I would come home from work or come home from school or whatever it was I was doing, and I'm not going to say nine. I'll say seven times out of ten, my parents were watching Curse of the Black Pearl on their own. So my mom and I went to a Midnight Showing. I went after work one night when I was still tending bar. So you didn't dress up? So No, I didn't dress up. Mom either? No, mom didn't dress up. That's kind of disappointing. Um, and if you really want to feel old, um, this movie came out in 2006, and at the time, smartphones weren't really a thing, so you couldn't just go onto an app to buy your ticket. I had to actually get on the phone with movie phone kids movie phone is not just a website it used to be and i'm sure it still is a phone number that you would call and i had to buy my tickets to the midnight showing through movie phone from behind the bar at work yeah so (laughs) bear that in mind when i kind of go through some of my uh my feelings about the film certainly how i felt about it the first time i saw it because by the time the movie wrapped up At the end, it was 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was very, very tired. Um, So I'm interested now, because admittedly, I have not seen this film quite that many times. Um, So I was really interested going into this week to sort of revisit it and see if my opinion had changed. I don't know if you were in the same boat. I I mean, I've probably seen this more times than you, um, but... If it's tw- if it's more than twice prior to this <laughs> week, it was more times than me. No, I would say I've seen this one upwards of 10 times, but not nearly as many as I have Curse of the Black Pearl. I mean, like when I want to return to this world, I go Curse of the Black Pearl. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of everybody's go-to. You can let us know what your go-to is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. What is your go-to pirate film? For some people, it might be this. And we're going to get right into it, and we're going to do a linear review this week of the show. You guys know, for those who've been following us for a long time, that every now and then we'll jump into a linear review and kind of just go from front to back with it. 
and and this movie in particular, you really have to do that with. Because if I had one big complaint, I mean, I had a few complaints after the first viewing, but I think my biggest complaint after the first viewing of this movie is how convoluted this plot can be. For as many times as I've seen it, there are still new things to discover because the first couple of times, I think you're just trying to get your head around the story as far as who's going after Jack's compass and who's going for the letters of Mark and who needs the key and who needs the chest. It it does get so convoluted that the first time seeing it, I got out of there and I was like, okay, what just happened? And I think I did go see it again in theaters. Like we were that obsessed with it. Um, but even now, now that I understand the story more, it's not even until, you know, these past couple of viewings that we did to prepare for the show, I was still finding new things about it. I think what I liked about watching it this week was watching it on a 43-inch screen. Because going to see this in the movie theater, late at night, when you've been working all day, you're just excited to be there. But because a lot happens in this movie, I feel like when you're seeing it on a huge screen, your eyes can only focus on so much at one time. I feel like it's easy to get lost, especially in this plot. The other thing about the viewing experience for this movie, especially if you're doing a midnight showing, there is such such a stark contrast when you're going particularly from the Dutchman to that really bright beach at the end of it. Yeah. It this sometimes depending on what time of day it is actually hurts to watch. <laughs> That's the first time I've heard a review that said it hurt me to watch it. No, like physically hurt. Like I have spoken that way about certain Nicolas Cage movies, but they hurt my heart. This this hurt my eyes at some points. Well, Especially the first time I saw it when it was near three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. The movie starts on the wedding day of Elizabeth and Will. On their wedding day, they are arrested for aiding in the escape of Captain Jack Sparrow by Lord Cutler Beckett. Meanwhile, Captain Jack has stowed away in a coffin and escaped his prison and is rescued by the crew of the Black Pearl. And on his person, he has come out with a picture of a key. Not the actual key itself. It is a picture of a key. Right away... I really loved the open of this movie because you don't other than um other than the castle I don't believe you get any title cards you open up into that slow motion rain over the tea sets um again uh I talked last week about how sometimes a lot of the colors are very washed out and that's done stylistically to sort of set the mood and Elizabeth is just getting rained on and she you could tell she's waiting for Will and it's her wedding day it is such a strong open and especially when you see him in the shackles um I knew right away we were jumping right into the action in this movie definitely uh, I think it's a strong start, despite slightly ripping off the November Rain music video. Um, but what I like is that it parallels the first one when you see when we meet Elizabeth the first time when she's a little girl, and it's like you know what is this young girl doing up on this immense ship? And now here, you know, she's sitting, she's soaking wet, her makeup is dripping down her face, and it's like, well, what happened? Um, and it's very jarring because the reason that this wedding got disrupted is not at all what you think. Right. I would have thought 
Jack did something to set this off, which kind of would have been like a fun start, but it gets real serious real quick. Either Jack did something or Will is off on a pirate adventure because he is a full pirate by the end of The Curse of the Black Pearl, and you're thinking he's just left her at the altar. He's left her behind. Perhaps he's forgotten it's her wedding day. And no, it's, it's that they're arrested. And what I love about this scene, too, is Cutler Beckett, Cutler Beckett. Who you have... What an intro. Great intro. Especially because I love the introduction of this character. If you didn't like James Norrington in The Curse of the Black Pearl, you will hate Cutler Beckett, and I say that in the best way possible. When Governor Swan says, "I what, are, what is he being arrested for? And he hands in the sheet um, spelling out exactly why he's been arrested. He goes, this arrest warrant is for Elizabeth Swan. He was like, oh... That's annoying. Here, here's the other one. So he literally hands the governor his daughter's arrest warrant. No, and you know he's going to be one of those really ruthless villains right away because he's got such a calm demeanor. He doesn't come in swinging. He just plays it all very, very cool. So you know that he's got something really evil brewing, especially because he doesn't even care that it's their wedding day. And the other thing is that Governor Swan has been doing his thing down in Port Royal and he reports directly back to England. Now you've got this other guy coming in that is forcing Swan to answer to him. Yeah, forcefully. Yeah, there's just no respect for for Swan's ruling there. Yeah. I love when he says that you aided in the escape of the pirate Jack Sparrow and in unison, Elizabeth and Will say, Captain. That was some comedy that was just perfect to lighten the mood of that scene. And it, it shows, at least up to that point in time, that they kind of think highly of Jack and have a fairly good relationship with him. Exactly. You think that from the first movie to the second that maybe it's developed a little bit. We just haven't seen how just yet. Right. Um, and then when we do get to Jack, uh, what I love about his entrance, it's never going to be as good as the one in the original movie. You just can't top that. It's too good. Yeah. We said it's, I say it's the best entrance in all of cinema. You said it's arguable, arguably the best right. last week. Uh, but what I love about this one here, it's still fun. It's still, you know, you can see he's kind of flying by the seat of his pants. But what I can really appreciate is we've heard about all of his crazy stories and crazy escapes. Now we get to see one. Yeah, when he's floating on that casket and the buzzard lands on it and he blows it away with his pistol and he grabs the leg off the corpse and he starts rowing with it. It's a great entrance for him. I think once he gets onto the ship, though, and he's talking to Gibbs and he's talking to the crew of the Black Pearl, I think some of the comedy there is very forced. I think it sort of falls flat when he's trying to explain, oh, it's it's a picture of the key. It's not actually the key, but how can we get the how do we know how to get to the key to get to the thing that we don't know? It's it, I know what they're trying to do, and I know they're trying to be very funny and and sort of build on that Jack Sparrow eccentricness um but i thought that the comedy here in this particular scene was a bit much i agree with you i feel like the script does struggle with that sometimes because they want to give you that familiarity and they want to incorporate what you know and love about the character not just 
with Captain Jack, but even, you know, when you when you said Elizabeth and Will said it in unison, Captain, like that was a running joke in the beginning that nobody gave him the respect he wanted. Um, I think some of those jokes do get a little bit played out, but at other points, the filmmakers kind of get in on the joke and they start making fun of themselves almost. So there are in the beginning of the film, I think it feels a little played out, but by the end, it all kind of balances. Yeah. The next day, Beckett asks Will to work as a spy for the East India Trading Company and recover the compass that belongs to Jack that will not point north in exchange for a full pardon. That night, Jack is visited by bootstrap Bill Turner, who tells Jack his time is up and he needs to pay his debt to Davy Jones. He then puts the black spot on Jack's hand. Uh, Jack was given command of the Black Pearl for 13 years in exchange for having to go into servitude for Davy Jones. And Jack lost the Pearl for 11 years. So he's trying to say, well, I was technically only the captain for two, but Bootstrap puts the, uh, the black spot in his hand. There's a lot about this scene that is so so powerful and it's so good before we get into that i do want to go back and hit on that scene between beckett and will yeah for a second sure um because what i like here is that they're really drawing from history the letters of mark were a real thing that were given to pirates i don't think as i understand it it was like a full pardon the way they're making it seem in this film especially the way norrington wants to use it but basically it let pirates work under the East India Trading Company. So there was still piracy going on, but it was so that the trading company would have full control. Right. And basically they they exchanged work for protection. Exactly. And I love at any point in this trilogy where they're bringing in real history. And I think they do a really good job of weaving in and out of it. The other thing that I think is really impressive is that... Um, they went back to St. Vincent to shoot most of this, and two months prior to filming, uh, the set got wiped out in a storm surge. Uh, so they had to rebuild everything, and they added a couple of things, obviously, now with the introdu- introduction of Beckett and um, more of a presence by the trading company. Uh, but they did his office so that everything that he's watching and everything coming in and out of port you could really see it in the background. That's something I really thought that they shot separately and maybe built it on a soundstage and just green screened it in, in the background. But they really did everything like old school Hollywood with it happening behind them. Yeah, I would have assumed that that was green screen too. And you want to talk about um, being either historically accurate or paying tribute to something in history. What this film does very well is it does pay tribute to the history of pirate lore and a lot of that early pirate literature. And this actually does draw a lot of influence from Treasure Island, which, as you pointed out last week, was the first live-action film that the Walt Disney Company ever produced. In that book, the black spot is either a black circle on a on a card or a sheet of paper that is handed over to a pirate that basically says, you, you will be executed. It's, it's really just a fair warning. So what I love about what they did here was that they took the concept of the black spot and instead of just handing Johnny Depp a sheet of paper, 
Bootstrap Bill actually puts a black spot on his palm that looks like it's slowly eating away at his at his skin. I go back and forth about that because I don't love it. I mean, it's such blatant CGI. Um, and you see the the handshake, you see the exchange. So I was like, why wouldn't they have just done that with makeup? You know, especially because it looks wet. Everything about Bootstrap, and we're going to get into that. Everything about him is soaking wet. So I feel like it would have been really easy to create something real that he could have just passed and stuck on Johnny Depp's hand. Right. Um, but I still, I mean, I like the idea of it. I like that you, because a piece of paper is not really menacing. No, and I think that if he just put makeup on his hand or just rubbed dirt on his palm, it's it's something that's going to wipe away. He needs something that he cannot hide from anybody. Right. Because the pirates know if you've got the black spot, it means Davy Jones is coming. He's trying to hide that from the crew. We haven't met Davy Jones yet. And I want to just say one thing about him. Similar to how they took the idea of the black spot and they ran with it, I love the fact that they took Davy Jones' locker really is just a phrase. Right. Davy Jones was never a character. He was never a real person. It, it was just a phrase that meant when a ship sunk to the bottom of the ocean, it was just known as Davy Jones' locker. I love the fact that they took that concept and they developed a character, gave him motivation, made him menacing, and made him scary more than just, well, you're only going to go to Davy Jones' locker if your ship sinks. In this case, Davy Jones can hunt you down. I wanted to put that out there before I forgot about that, because at this point, we haven't seen Davy Jones yet, but I feel like we already know a lot about him just based off of what Bootstrap Bill has told Jack Sparrow and and the way that Jack has responded to the news that Jones is coming for him. I agree because what I feel that this franchise does successfully overall is that they always take the little pirate dialogue or the shanty songs or in this case a phrase like Davy Jones Locker and they build on it and they pepper it in so that it doesn't slam you over the head. I mean that's what makes this so successful as far as being a period piece is because they didn't go over the top piratey. And I think especially now that we've completely departed from the ride, there was the potential to get to that point, but it still tiptoes enough where it feels like it's not completely overdone. Right. Because I think that they ran the risk if they were too on the nose with the pirate phrases and, and sort of the things that you associate with some of the old classic Hollywood pirate films and even some of them that um, seesawed back and forth between Golden Age and Cheesy. Mm. I think that they told the line perfectly because if you did too much, I don't think people would look at this as a movie to be taken seriously. It would become too much of, of a satire or of a spoof, Absolutely. for lack of a better word. I also want to touch on what you said before about them turning in Davy Jones into something that is hunting them down. Yeah. Um, I actually didn't like this scene upon first viewing because I felt like they didn't really, it felt like it almost came out of nowhere because, okay, obviously it's the second movie. You're going to have a different villain, but I feel like there was no breadcrumb trail from the first one as to, 
why Jack is even in this position. I mean, we know he got the pearl back. Um, and okay, you give them a pass because at the time they shot the first one and wrote it, they certainly didn't know they were going to do a, another two movies. Sure. Um, but I kind of felt like it did a little bit of a disservice to Jack's character because he's always nine steps ahead of everyone. And now here he is being chased down. But you, this is where the movie starts to get a little convoluted because you almost forget he is chasing after the key. So he really is ahead of it because he probably knows his time was coming and he's been trying to put the pieces together in preparation for Jones. Yeah, he's been proactive in trying to put off the inevitable. But I think that this scene, it's a totally creepy exchange, but I don't mean that in a negative way. I think that it's a very powerful scene. I love Stellan Skarsgård here. I mean, he is one of the strongest actors in the franchise. To put him with Johnny Depp, their exchange together, it's so good. And we'll talk in a little while about the, um, about the makeup that they did. <clears throat> excuse me, in and the way that they kind of develop some of these characters. But when you see him for the first time, it's very jarring. Absolutely, especially because when they kick off the scene, Jack Sparrow is going to get more rum. Yeah. Of course, he ran out of rum. That's another, you know, that was getting a little bit dragged on. But he goes down to get more, and Bootstrap Bill just pops out of nowhere. Um, did you realize right away that that's who it was supposed to be? No. Not until he called him out on it. Yeah, that was that was a really great reveal. And I love, I mean, I love the aesthetic and we'll talk more about the makeup, but I think it was really smart to expand on that idea of Davy Jones Locker that they are all sort of rotting away at the bottom of the ocean. Um, and the way that Skarsgård plays him too, he gives him this melancholy. So like you feel really, really bad for him and his relationship with Will. Yeah, and you also start to be, you start to feel bad for Jack because even though you've only seen him in one film, this is a character that you've fallen in love with and you're looking at what has happened to Bootstrap and you know that if Jones gets his hand on Jack, Jack's going to ha Jack has the same fate laying lying in front of him and he will be covered with barnacles and he will be part of a uh, of the crew and <clears throat> look like he was a part of a shipwreck. Exactly. So Jack tells the crew after this exchange has happened to head for shore. Meanwhile, Jones and his ship the Flying Dutchman attack another unassuming ship. Will in the meantime has set off to find Jack at Beckett's behest. This is where the movie, it really starts to go here, go here, go here, go here. It jumps around a lot. I love how in his search for Jack, though, they start breaking the fourth wall. Yes. It's really cool. Yeah, anybody that Will is asking where Jack is, they're like looking directly into the camera and they're either bad-mouthing Jack or saying they don't know. It's it's really clever and there's he's dead he's in singapore and then you get he, scarlet yeah scarlet slaps will you know it's another sort of rehashed joke um but a lot going on here and and i'll give you a little bit more of the plot in just a moment but this is where the the pacing of the movie started to become a problem um i think that the pacing of this movie throughout is a problem i think it's jarring i think it jumps around way too much um, there are times where they try to stuff 10 pounds of stuff into a five pound bag 
And then there are other times where they take a scene that could have been wrapped in three minutes and they stretch it over ten. And that starts to happen really from this point moving forward. Yeah, and in those scenes that do stretch, they're very dialogue heavy. Yeah, very much so. Well, anyway, Will finds the Black Pearl grounded on a desert island where Jack uh, reigns supreme as a chief over a tribe of natives who capture Will and are set on killing him. Governor Swan, meanwhile, I told you it's going to go back and forth a lot, has busted Elizabeth out of prison while also attempting to send a letter to the King of England, but is intercepted by Beckett and his men. Elizabeth has Beckett at gunpoint um, and forces him to sign and seal their pardons in exchange for the compass that they're going to try and retrieve from Jack. Back on the island... Because, again, we're back and forth. Will and the crew of the Black Pearl are being held captive while the natives, believing that Jack is a god, intend on cooking him and eating him to free his soul from his physical body. Jack is eventually tied to a stake over uh, some burning wood, uh, but he and the crew eventually escape and fight off the natives. Yes, I'm, I, that, 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 that all happens <laughs> over the course of like 35 minutes. It's very long and it's very drawn out. And you feel free to backtrack where you have to to talk about any of those other scenes. Yeah, I actually felt like this scene was earlier on in the movie. You don't realize this is like your second act. And like you said, it's long. It is yeah. really long. But there is a lot of back and forth between what's happening you know, in Port Royal versus where the crew is. Um, What I love is that, I mean, I I love how they brought back the entire cast right down to Scarlet, like we were Mm -hmm. just talking about. Yeah. But they got Pintel and Rigetti back. And I love the idea of them as free agents because (laughs) when Will gets to the beach, they arrive pretty soon after and they recognize the Pearl and they're going to try and take it. Right. And then they end up working with Jack's crew. And they've got the dog with them. Yes. The dog with the keys. Even got the dog back. Even it's got great. The do- I, I, yeah, but I, I've i never... I don't think that any of this makes any sort of sense. I'm I'm fine with Pintel and Rigetti with the dog, who seemingly come out of nowhere, working they together. They had him. But I'm saying they all kind of come out of nowhere. I know that they were on the Pearl at one point, and then they weren't, and now they found the Pearl on a rowboat. Well, they end... With the surrender, right on the Dauntless. So I think we can assume that Norrington had them at the end of the first film, right? And now they've gotten out. They used the dog really to get out. Yes, but now they've also just taken a rowboat from God knows where, rowed how how far we have no idea because. I mean, Jack Jack was out in the middle of the ocean and just had them ground the Black Pearl so that it couldn't be taken by Davy Jones. So we don't know how they got there. We don't know how far out they were on this rowboat. Good to see them again. I'm, I'm happy that they're back. I love them, as you said, as free agents, but that was a stretch. And I, I understand they were trying to be funny and they were trying to be whimsical, but do you remember last week when I said that um, rather than being silly, the movie was just comedic at times. This is where it gets silly. 
and this is what I feared the first film was going to be like when I went into the first viewing of The Curse of the Black Pearl. That's kind of what I was talking about earlier, where they're kind of recycling the same shtick and it hasn't really leveled out yet. It's like when um, Fuller House came out and we only got through the first couple of episodes. We didn't stick with the new series because we felt like in that not pilot, but in in the first episode of the Netflix version version of the show, that they just had to cram everything in, and they really did beat a dead horse. Yeah, with them even singing the Flintstone song at the end of the first episode. Yeah, it was it was super cheesy, and as I understand, that kind of leveled out as the series went on, but this was kind of victim of the same thing it's like you're giving us what we already know we're establishing that the characters are back you're giving us what we love about them but other than elizabeth really nobody has started to grow just yet no and we don't understand it's the whole jack being viewed as a god i mean i understand why he did it he did it to save his own skin and lie to these natives but, and okay, the natives are on the island that they just happened to land on. Why did any of this happen? It, none of it led to anything because all they do is escape the natives and escape the island, which they could, which they would have done anyway. Right, because Jack is the king of self-preservation. So it's like, I, like you said, he's doing this to save himself, but I feel like he would have never gotten to this position. Another thing that this film sometimes falls victim to is visuals over story. Yes. You have a really cool escape scene, not just from Jack, but also the crew. And it's awesome. And I can kind of forgive how random all of this is because it is so cool. But I I hate when story is sacrificed in any capacity. Which, when we discussed the first film, you gave it so much credit for being the opposite of this. It was airtight. it, It totally was airtight. And for it being story-driven over visual or over action. And here it seems like they took three steps back just to make it crazier and more action-filled than the first one. I wouldn't say it's three steps back, but I kind of feel like on the part of the filmmakers, it was like, all right, how can we how can we top this? Right. And to me, a stripped-down scene like the sword fight in the blacksmith shop it it trumps this any day. Of course it does. And this scene is like a run-on sentence. It just goes on for way too long. And at times, I do feel that the writing is bad when there is dialogue. You know, when Will first gets to the island, he gets trapped by the natives, mm-hmm. you know, in a rope and pulley system that you've seen a hundred times in Looney Tunes, and he gets caught in it this time. And he's just swinging the sword going, Who wants it? Come get it. Is that all you've got? It's... I get you're trying to be funny, but this is too contemporary for what is supposed to be a period piece. Oh, see, I disagree because I feel like that's such a part of Will's character is that for as cautious as he was in the first one, there were points where he would jump right in without thinking. Like when they're when they're trying to commandeer the interceptor and they yeah. fake them out on the dauntless and Jack gets on board and Will comes on behind him and he's like, Avast. Yeah. Um 
he he kind of does what he thinks a pirate should do and not what he should be doing in this situation. But I think you needed to set that up because now we're really going to see Will unravel into piracy. Yes. I'm just saying I don't think who wants it come get some was common speak <laughs> in yeah. the 1700s or the I'll 1600s give you that. I will when give this you that. movie is supposed to be taking place. It's also really off-putting during a midnight showing and it's now easily 1 a.m. <laughs> and and I think that that was part of the reason why I disliked it so much. Um, but I do think it was too long and, and I don't. I don't think I think that if you wanted to have this scene, you could have trimmed 10 minutes off of it. Regardless, though, I love the human cages and that escape. I love that the crew has gotten bigger, but you're still kind of breaking it down into old school and new school. Um, And that you see, you know, your core people like Gibbs and Marty all working together to get and uh, Cotton. Can't forget Cotton. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was really clever. And I love the design of those cages. And I love that they put them in the parks after they were done with them. Yes. And that we did get to see them on the old. They were on the backlot tour, weren't they? Yeah. And then uh, they had to take them away because the Florida weather ate away at them. I believe it. And then they just took the whole ride away. So. <laughs> Nobody wins. Yeah, but I was very upset about that. But, you know, Galaxy's Edge and all. I'd rather go on the back lot tour. Don't say things you can't take back. (laughs) Elizabeth, meanwhile, has stowed away on another ship who, upon finding her wedding dress, believes it will bring them bad luck. Jack and the crew of the Black Pearl set off to speak with Calypso. Um who's sort of a voodoo woman. Um, and she, She's not Calypso yet. She's Tia Dama. Uh, Tia Dama, but we know You're it's You're in Calypso. the third movie. Yeah, but we know it's Calypso. Um, and she tells them that the key that Jack is seeking opens the chest containing the heart of Davy Jones. And, you know, Jones does keep the key on him at all time. She, Calypso gives Jack a jar of dirt that she claims will help them. Jack sends Will to retrieve the key from the Flying Dutchman, um, but Will is captured by its crew, and he tells Davy Jones that he has come to settle Jack's debt with him. Um, A lot happens here. A lot is planted specifically in her scene, in her shack, Tia Dama. Tia Dama. Um, Dama. What? Tia Dama. Tia Dama. Dama with an L. Oh, Dalma. Yes. Okay. Um, sorry. Um, I mean, you'd never know with that Jamaican accent, but I, I love Tia Dama. I think Naomi Harris knocked it out of the park. She's amazing. Oh my god. She, yeah, she's, she's incredible. I mean, I love. I love the incorporation of the character. I love the incorporation of this set, especially because people were whining over where are the fireflies? And you couldn't have every single thing from the ride. You just, you couldn't. Yeah, but we do get a lot of it here. You do get it addressed here. They do have the fireflies as you're going through the bayou. Um, But yeah, I I just love this world that they created. And um, I love that they are planting Barbosa from the very beginning here. And you don't realize it because you think that Jack the monkey just runs out of the cage, but he's running to him and you see the boots, but 
then Jack Sparrow even picks up the hat. You gotta be paying very, very close attention. The, the boots they zoom in on. Right. But if if you you know, if you're a hardcore fan, you should have recognized the hat. Right. But this is another instance where when you're seeing it on a big screen in a movie theater for the first time, so much is going on visually that your eyes can only scan so much at once. No, and that that set is so amazing. There is so much to take in there. It's really visually stunning. So, yeah, if you don't get it on your first time, I can't say that I blame you. Right. Let's rewind a couple of steps, too, and talk about the introduction of Davy Jones because now we have seen him because Will Will was duped by Jack to go to the ship. Jack knew the entire time, I believe, that Jones was going to capture Will. Do you think that he was duped or do you think he was trying to do the right thing by reuniting him with his father? No, I think he duped him. I think him being reunited with his father was just a happy circumstance. I don't think so, though, because the first thing that Jack says when when they set up the exchange is that he doesn't want Will to count towards the number of souls that he owes. I don't think he was planning on Jones keeping him. I think he just wanted him to be able to meet Bootstrap. Maybe, but I, I don't know. And that's really the only way you could pull it off because Jack is not looking to be caught up with by the Dutchman. Right. The Dutchman, which... Aesthetically, I love the Whoa. look. I yeah. love the look of the Dutchman. I love the look of the crew of the Dutchman. Again, we'll talk about all of this in a little while when we sort of break down the makeup and the CGI. Because obviously, um, Bill Nye, who plays um, uh, Davy Jones, is completely CGI'd. And. While I think Nighy is great, and while I do kind of like Davy Jones, I you know, I don't want to... A lot happens in the second and third movie, so I'm not going to give my full opinion of Jones because there's so much character development in those two films. And I think it changes. It absolutely does. Um, he's fine, but I never liked that CGI. I mean, I understand they wanted to give those tentacles life and they wanted them to move and they wanted them to kind of be free roaming and have their own agenda, but I, I could just never get into this CGI, especially because the makeup and the costumes and everything about the first movie was so good that I, I just wish there was a way they could have carried it over. Well... What I do love is that when you put the Black Pearl up against the Flying Dutchman and you think of the zombie pirates versus the locker crew of rotting pirates, I think it's amazing how much they were able to diversify them. Right. Nothing about the first film looks similar to Davy Jones's crew. Um, so I think that's an amazing achievement. It's no secret I'm always a, a fan of practical effects over CGI. Um, I don't think it could have worked here because there is so much in and out of the water. I don't think you can have that many people, especially because now, too, let's not forget, they were shooting the second and third film back to back because... Kira Knightley and Orlando Bloom were on the rise and they knew they had kind of a short window 
to get them. So scheduling wise, they just decided to lock them into two more movies, shoot them back to back. This this cast and crew literally had their premiere of the second movie and went back to work like a day or two later on the third one because they weren't done shooting it yet. But anyway, um, I think because of the time and budgetary constraints that they were up against, I don't think that they could have done all of that makeup over and over because Bill Nighy was practical effects and it was four and a half hours of makeup every day for him to get that bootstrap look. Would I have loved to see everybody like that? Yes, but you can't have that many actors in the makeup chair for that long. Especially right. when you're talking about diving in and out of the water that much. It's sure. just it's not gonna hold. But with that being said, could they have possibly at least designed Davy Jones because he's the captain, because he's a main character in practical makeup? Did he need to be squid like is the question. I mean, that's the thing. You you're you're developing him based on nothing. Right. Did he need to be a squid? Because they did at one point too have him in the makeup and they were just going to animate the tentacles around him, but that wasn't working either. Um, and just because of the heat of the film too, they just couldn't keep the prosthetic on. It was right. way too hot for the actor. So that's always been my gripe with the character. And and that hasn't changed. Um that has been consistent throughout. What I think does need to be said, though, is that Bill Nighy did see the overall design. But as far as all of like the, you know, like anytime he turns the tentacles like swoop around, and so does his his outfit. And he gives the performance all these little like pops because he's supposed to be, you know, like dripping wet and slimy. Yeah. Um so I think that's really a testament to how good the performance is that he was able to do that and at times make it sound like he couldn't breathe because he doesn't have a nose without being in actual makeup. Yeah, he was excellent in this film and he was excellent in the third movie as well. Well, Jones does confront Jack and he tells him that he must settle his debt as he was the captain of the Pearl for 13 years, and as I mentioned earlier, Jack reminds him, well, he only served for two, so Jones tells him that he will settle his debt in exchange for 100 souls to be uh, collected over the course of the next three days, and that he is keeping Will at least as collateral, and says, go back and get me 99 more. So Jack and the crew set sail for Tortuga to collect the victims, because that's really what they're going to be. Meanwhile, Elizabeth has strung up her wedding dress on the ship that she has stowed away on to make it look haunted and to make it look like a ghost and convinces the crew of that ship that um, she also needs to get to Tortuga. Um, no. So here's the thing. It's funny. It's funny... I like to see Elizabeth getting creative here. This is too much. What? This is too much. I love this whole scene. First of all, I like that they did it practical. And, you know, they had Elizabeth, you know, they show her entire setup like it's a marionette. But I love that she's preying on the fear of the pirates. And this is so in her wheelhouse because she's grown up around Gibbs who believes every, you know, he knows the history, but he also knows all of the folklore and he believes all of it. Like it is history. So to me, this was just such a natural thing for her to do. Sure. Um, yeah. There's just, I don't know. There's something about it. 
I think it I think it it's like the scene on the desert island it teeters on being too silly for me. I can give you that because of the crew's reaction. They do become like bumbling idiots. Yes. When they think it's actually haunted. I still like this as a device for her to get to Tortuga. Yeah. I also think that at this point and and even now, years later, as I'm watching this film again, I'm getting so tired of the back and forth and it's just flashing here, going here, going here, going here, that it's so confusing and convoluted. You don't know where you are. You don't know where any of the, uh, any of them are. At least we know now they're going to Tortuga. But I, the back and forth has just bothered me. And, and even now, having sat and watched it twice in the last couple of days, not after a night of work, not on an hour of sleep, not at 3 o'clock in the morning, it's still too much. It's almost like Walking Dead Syndrome, where now your cast is so big, there's just so many people, so many different places. So you're right. It does cut back and forth between storylines quite a bit. Well, now on Tortuga, Jack collects five souls one of which is a disgraced Commodore Norrington who is now a drunk recluse with nothing to lose. In this scene, we talked last week about how there were deleted scenes from the first Pirates of the Caribbean film, The Curse of the Black Pearl, with a, uh, with a lot of more on-the-nose tributes to the theme park attraction. Mm-hmm. They recycled them here and put them in the introduction of Tortuga. I'm going to be honest. I don't know that I would have caught that not having watched, maybe watching the movies back to back. I mean, I, I wouldn't have realized it was missing from the first one, but watching the deleted scenes back to back with this, I I was, we were watching it and I was like, they recycled that shot. I was almost angry. Um, but again, they're shooting two films back to back. Time and budget. I kind of right. get why they did it. They had it. But with that being said, the guy getting dunked into the well is sort of unmotivated. It makes no sense. We don't know who he is. We don't know what he did. We never see him again. I mean, we we know that Tortuga is is a drunken mess all of the time, but it doesn't make sense really that the pirates aren't the ones doing it. Right. To a main character. But none of that matters because Disgrace Norrington is the most unexpected and brilliant thing that this film does. I love Disgrace Norrington. Same. I love that he's on the run. I I love that he has now ended up in the place that he never would have thought that he ended up in, Tortuga, with pirates, and as Jack will tell him, taking orders from pirates on a pirate crew. This was shocking, this was perfect. I remember the audible gasp in the theater because you recognize the voice immediately. And the line, too, when he's talking to Gibbs, I'm the same as you, but I'm about a chapter behind. And then in the end of the scene, he is thrown out into the pigs, literally where we find Gibbs after he is, you know, fallen from the Navy. Yeah. Um, no, I, I love it. And I love that now he has no choice but to work with them to redeem himself. Absolutely. Back on the Dutchman, Will is unexpectedly reunited with his father, um, who is forced to give Will five lashes with a whip. 
is basically Will was moving something in a cargo net and he slipped. A it, and he slipped and he dropped cannon. it. He dropped it. It was, you know, and it did a bunch of damage to the ship, damaged the cannon. And Jones says, okay, t- five lashes for you for, you know, being irresponsible for, you know, for all intents and purposes. And Bootstrap, n- realizing that's his son, says, um, I'll I'll take ten. I'll take them all because he had also gotten five for speaking up, and so basically the punishment that uh, Jones gives them is, well, you're gonna whip your son or we're gonna do it. And Bootstrap decides it's better if he does it because I guess he can he somehow be more gentle. He can be a little bit more gentle. Will tells his father that he is after the key to the dead man's chest. Um while he is reconciling with him. I like their reunion, um, but I think the issues I had with Will Turner in the first film, this is an example of the issue I had with him in the first film, where he kind of comes off a little whiny and pouty. You know your father is a pirate. That's no longer a shock to you. You have now also become a pirate. And your father is trying to protect you. He's trying to help you. He's trying to guide you. And you're kind of just stomping your feet and putting your fingers in your ears. And you don't want to hear what he has to say. It's also a little contradictory because Will says in the first movie that when his mother died, he came to the Caribbean looking for his father. Um. So he really doesn't know his father. I mean, he had the medallion that he gave him. I feel like Will is brushing him off like he's a deadbeat dad and not, you know, you have this opportunity here. He's not even trying to understand why he grew up without a father. Right. Well, I guess that's the other thing, too, though. In the first film, he's written him off the entire time as a pirate. Yeah. But they do address that later on. They do. Back on Tortuga, Elizabeth finds Jack and joins him on the Pearl to find that um, Will was left with um, with Davy Jones. Jack tells Elizabeth that Will has joined Jones's crew and tells her that if they get the chest, they can use it as leverage against Jones to free Will. Jack then explains to her and Norrington that his compass is not broken. It's not meant to point north. It points to the thing you want most in the world. So he gives the compass to Elizabeth and tells her, this will take you to the thing you want most in the world, the chest. And he kind of convinces her that that's what she wants because the chest will free Will And they finally get their heading and they set off to find the chest. And now it seems like the adventure is going to start picking up again. But because you're flashing back and forth so much, it's getting more and more convoluted as the movie goes on. But what I like about this scene is that Jack seems like even he can't really control his compass. Because if he wanted to get to the chest so badly, why did he need her to hold the compass to get the heading? 
And I think that that adds a layer to Jack where, to touch on what you said before, maybe he didn't just sacrifice Will. Maybe he didn't just set him up. Jack may be conflicted. And he needs her with a clear mind and a clear vision of we need to save Will to get them that heading and to get them to that chest. I think what Jack is conflicted over is because he is trying to collect these 99 souls and at this point is failing miserably because he has five and he's got a long way to go. But, you know, Davy Jones did pose the question, can you live with yourself? Um, so I think that's where he's struggling is because when he took that deal, Elizabeth wasn't there in his face. And now that he sees her, he realizes what he's doing to her relationship. What I really don't like about this scene is where they start to introduce the idea of the attraction between the two. And it was funny in the first one because, you know, she's never going to go for him and he's a womanizer that's going to pursue her anyway. Um, But here, I feel like they set it up and don't necessarily follow through with it enough, which sounds ridiculous because by the end of the movie, she kisses him and sets him up, but she's setting him up. Here, they start, I think, exploring this idea of Elizabeth wanting to be her own person. Right. So I don't think the compass is pointing at Jack like she wants him. I think it's creating this idea that she wants to be him. Yes. But then it sort of stops there because all she says after that is how much she wants to be married. So I feel like we're starting to lose a little bit of her character in here somewhere, or at least a little bit of her growth. Yeah. A little like two steps forward and one step back with her. I would agree. The next day Beckett convinces governor Swan to pledge his allegiance to the East India trading company back on the Dutchman will challenges Jones to a dice game and wagers a lifetime of service against Jones's key convinced will is doomed to lose his father also wages an eternity of servitude and loses the game in order to protect will's soul Jones however has exposed the key which is all will wanted to begin with um and he shows him basically where he's hiding it at all times and that night will steals the key and with the help of his father escapes the dutchman so a lot happening here starting with beckett convincing governor swan to swear his allegiance to east india trading company which at this point swan is so desperate to protect elizabeth that it's not a surprise that he would do this. Sure. And frankly, I like that they that this is the direction that they took it in because Swan has always been very much to the code and by the book, and now he's got to go against the grain. But the one thing that has been constant with him throughout the first film and now into the second is as straight-laced and as to the book as he is, his love and admiration and allegiance to his daughter trumps all. Right. And they do take it a little bit further here because, you know, in the first one, it was all about her choosing will over the stability of Norrington. And now, even though she's out there on her own, he's still trying to protect her, but he does trust her and he knows that she's strong enough to weather whatever situation she's in. And the thing is, it, he obviously, because he's off with Beckett, he does not know 
everything that she has done up to this point because she, as we've kind of run down the list here, is very much not only been in self-preservation mode, but has been successful in self-preservation mode. So off on her own, she's showing us that she can handle herself very well, which is why when she does things like you just laid out with Kissing Jack and... That's where it gets frustrating, where it seems like the character's progressing and then you just stunted her growth. Exactly, because she does want freedom and she's proven that she can take care of herself. And yet there's still that back and forth with she wants to be married. But, you know, they've they've also established as far as what Governor Swan knows, Elizabeth skipped a step. Right. That, you know, Will was trying to get the compass from Jack to give to Beckett. Elizabeth just held a gun to his head and got what she needed herself. Exactly. As as happy, well, not I'm not going to say happy. It's I'm indifferent. As fine as I am with um, Will's father sacrificing himself to save Will now that we are back on the Dutchman, this is another instance in the film where it makes sense, but it, now you're really getting convoluted again. And I think... That's an issue that I have with the pacing in this film throughout. And I know I've mentioned the pacing a couple of times now, but, and to coin the phrase, (laughs) 10 pounds of stuff in a five pound bag, that happens a lot in this movie, but it happens in droves. Like you will, you'll have a fairly reasonable pace and then you'll get these clips of three and four minutes at a time where it's just way too much going on. Right, especially with the specificity of the dice game. Yeah. I remember, like, I didn't understand that until my second or third time through watching this because they actually created this game. And I love that Gore Verbinski was even playing it with his kids to make sure that he really understood it and to figure out how he was going to shoot this. Because, you know, poker scenes, you see them played a lot. Right. And, um, They're good character scenes because, you know, you can see the person's hand and you can see what the character is doing to to hide it or bluff. So you kind of get more insight into the inner workings of the character. But to do something like this on a game that the audience is not familiar with, that must have been a real challenge to figure out, Okay, how am I going to develop the characters and, and create this tension with something that nobody even knows how to play. Yeah, I mean, even I, as many times as I've seen the movie just this week alone, even I'm sort of confused with how they're playing the game. I I understand the... I, I sort of understand the purpose of the scene, and I kind of understand the premise, but even I am totally confused by it. Well, I think once you get poker out of your head, that's kind of what helped me to understand it because it's liar's dice. That's the thing is they each have a set number of dice and they're they're saying how many are on the table, not just in their cup. So if you you have a lot of fives, which I think is the the number that ends up sinking them, um, like that's the thing. How how far can you push that wager without going over? Yeah. It's almost like like poker meets the price is right, kind of. Exactly, and that's why his father goes, and what is he, 12 threes or whatever it is that he said? It was something right, so ridiculous. Right, because Will lost, so he had, to, he had to fall on the sword. Right. It was something so outlandish that he clearly had thrown the game in his son's favor. And that's what escalates the scene, though, is just by virtue of Bill joining the game. 
what I like about this scene most of all is it shows how smart Will is. Yes. Not that we don't know that he's intelligent already, but you're also seeing how he's starting to be fleshed out as a pirate. Exactly. He doesn't want to play this game. He just wants to play into somebody else's foolishness and expose what it is he really wants. Especially because he hasn't signed up for servitude on right. the ship yet. Right. So he is kind of gambling with his own freedom here. Right. But he knows at the end of the day, he's willing to gamble his freedom because he knows that they can defeat Jones and he's not going to end up serving on this ship anyway. At least that's what he thinks. And I think he knows that Jack is going to get him out of this. Yeah. And I think that's it speaks more to his opinion and his faith in Jack more than it does anything else. Exactly. Like, he's not happy that Jack sent him there in his place, but he knows that there are multiple pieces of this. Right. Back on the Pearl, we learn that Beckett wants the chest for himself so that the East India Trading Company can control the sea and they can continue to make money and prosper. A lot happens back on the Pearl, and you, you talked a few moments ago about how the compass points at Jack and it's not so much that she's physically attracted to Jack so much as it is that I, I think that you're right. She wants to be what Jack already is. My biggest takeaway from this is the shade that Norrington Ooh. throws at her when he mentions her quote-unquote latest fiancé. It's a brilliant line. It's, it is so good. And, and what I like about it, too, is that Norrington, for the entire first film, was trying to be a gentleman, and he was trying to impress Elizabeth and be prim and proper, and to the point where it's almost nauseating. And now you see this Norrington that is not only down on his luck and drunk, but he is exposed for the way that he truly is because there's no way that he wasn't thinking this way before. It's just that he had to put up the facade. The best thing about Norrington in this movie is that the facade is gone. See, I don't know that it's necessarily gone because he ends his last line is giving Will his blessing over the relationship because I think he sees that Elizabeth truly loves Will. Um, but here, I feel like it goes beyond him just going being scorned because he says as much to her, there was a point where I would have given anything for you to look at me that way. Meaning the way that she's looking at Jack. Yeah. Um, and then he basically calls her a hussy yeah. because it seems like the relationship with Will is now reduced to nothing and right. she's lusting after Jack. So it's a great dig with very few words. Right. Will, as I mentioned before, has escaped off the Dutchman and coincidentally is found by the ship that Elizabeth had once stowed away on. But Jones tracks it down and sends the Kraken to destroy it. This is a devastating scene in terms of damage, in terms of just a general attack. It's one of the best in the film. It's certainly a powerful moment. But I have to say, my two big gripes with it, as good as the scene is, how Will survives this makes absolutely no sense. How they 
somehow how he slipped through their fingers, not only slipped through their fingers, but basically just stowed away on the hull of the Dutchman and nobody knew he was there, made no sense. And the CGI at times is unwatchably bad. Unwatchably bad. Yeah, I mean, for the CGI to look so good on Jones, but so bad on the Kraken doesn't really add up. I mean, in in wider shots where you see the whole thing, it's it's really not great. Um, the close-ups of the tentacles and stuff are pretty good, though. Like the the underside, like the suctiony part. Yeah. Otherwise, it's like you see the tentacles are so well done on Jones, and it's like, why does this not add up here? Well, yeah. Well, I guess it's because the tentacles on Jones are so small that their size hides their imperfections. Possibly. Um. Or they just might have spent a lot more time on the detail yeah, of that and the close-up. I, I think the other thing is you had a lot more information on there because they did the motion capture on Bill Nye with the Kraken. I think you're just kind of flying by the seat of your pants. Um, it is a little bit far-fetched as far as Will's survival, but what I do like is he does have a moment where he it dawns on him that they're they're. The Kraken is attacking, and yeah. he says, I've doomed us all. Um, but obviously, he's got to get out of it. It seems a little far-fetched that anyone could survive that attack, but the way he goes about it by staying up on the mast, that by the time the ship flips over, he's far enough away from the Kraken pulling it down. It's like, okay. But then, yeah, then he goes straight back to the Dutchman. Yeah, and they basically give up looking for him. Like, no sign of the boy. The sea took him. And Jones looks at them and says, I am the sea. I mean, how do they lose him? How did you lose him? Um, well, and how do they also know who the Kraken has and who it doesn't? Yeah, uh, it's a lot of it doesn't make any sense. Um, well, anyway, Jack, Elizabeth, and the Pearl eventually make landfall with the help of Norrington, uh, Norrington, and they dig up the dead man's chest. Jones, who is unable to set foot on land for at least another decade, as he tells us, sends his crew to stop them. Will arrives and tells the truth of how he ended up on the Dutchman, and he says that he intends on killing Jones. And of course, by telling the truth of how he ended up there, he exposes Jack for having lied to Elizabeth in regards to how Will truly ended up in that situation. Jack, Norrington, and Will all start to sword fight in an attempt to gain possession of the chest because Norrington wants it to give it to the East India Trading Company. Will wants to kill Jones, and Jack's just trying to save his own skin. Once Jones's men arrive, they must fight them off as well. I think that this scene here, um, I will. it makes sense that they each have their motivations, and I think it does drive the scene forward, but this is another scene that is way too long and poorly paced. I know they were trying to drag out some of the comedy, but it just lingers on and on and on. I agree with you that it drags a little bit because... It is so convoluted and they even have to make a point of pausing the action, cutting to Pintel and Rigetti to sort of recap who is after what, because there's just so much going on at this point. Now you've got, you know, you've had all these different storylines and everybody's on a different ship and now they're back together. So I think 
that that was maybe done for the kids in the audience as well, just to give them a refresher of, of who needs what here. But even as an adult, sometimes you need a little recap. Right. As to why they're all after it, especially because you would think that Jack and Will would be working together against Norrington. Or maybe at this point, Will has flipped sides, realized that Jack set him up and maybe he's with Norrington, too. Um, right, because he, he does not stop Norrington when Norrington goes to kill Jack. Exactly, because he's kind of ticked off at Jack now. Right. I think part of the other reason that they have to stop and explain it as well is that one of the things that we learned in researching about the production of this film, we knew that they were shooting these two movies back to back, right? What we did not know was how close to production they were still writing the script and basically they had to start pre-production before the script was even done in order to hit these deadlines um so gore and the production team started doing the visuals before they had a complete script and i think this is probably the best example of where you sacrifice story for the visual because they probably conceptualize this whole thing and it's, oh, we're going to have a three-way sword fight on a spinning wheel between Jack, Will, and Norrington and they're going to be inside the wheel and running on it like a hamster and sometimes on top of it. And it's like, it's such a cool concept and it does look amazing. But to get them there, I feel like it was almost forced. It absolutely was. And they're just trying to... This is a this is very typical of a sequel, of a very successful film, where I mentioned in last week's episode that I felt the first sword fight in the film between Jack and Will in the uh, swordsmith shop is the best sword fight in the entire series. Mm -hmm. And I still think that to be true. Otherwise, I wouldn't have said it a week ago. This is an example of, okay, well, this is the sequel, so we have to make it bigger. It doesn't need to exactly. be better. It just needs to be bigger. Right. And I did say last week, this scene does give the blacksmith shop a run for its money. But where the blacksmith shop is better is that there's character in here. In this, it's just okay, it looks cool, but it's literally banging swords. There's nothing that really pushes the story forward. Okay, the wheel does serve as a means of escape at the end because it runs over a whole bunch of J Jones's crew. But as far as the story of the three of them, it doesn't really do anything because they're still all against each other. I think if you had make, made Will choose a side instead of him being in self-preservation mode and acting for himself and Elizabeth, I think that might have been a bit more interesting because then, you know, you're determining whether he really trusts Jack or not. Right. And then that goes nowhere because Elizabeth ultimately makes the final decision. Yeah. There's a great quote from Ryan Reynolds because we oh, all know I'm dying him. To hear this. <laughs> we all know him as Deadpool. Mm -hmm. Before he was Deadpool, people knew him as the Green Lantern. And that was a film that had mostly negative to mixed reviews. Um, I personally found that movie to be a lot of fun, but I also only started reading Green Lantern comics after the movie came out. And the big problem that people had with it was 
that they thought the story wasn't any good, the script wasn't any good, okay? As visually good as it was. And Ryan Reynolds said the difference between Deadpool and the Green Lantern is Deadpool was a character, we had him fleshed out, we had a script, we had a story. Green Lantern, we had a poster. And that was it. He signed on to do Green Lantern before the script had even been written. Because they just said, we're going to do a movie. They gave basically concept art and said, here you go, sign on the dotted line. And him being a young actor at the time, I mean, this was an opportunity to get into a franchise and cash in. He'd be crazy not to do it. Who wouldn't? But when I hear stories like this, when it comes to the production of this film... And as you just pointed out, putting visual effect before story and starting to go forward with production or going forward with meetings before a script is done, you had a poster before you had a story. And it shows here. It really does show here, specifically in this scene. Yeah, I'm not taking away from how cool it is because it is cool. And the way that they shot it and that they actually, you know, suspended all of them in that wheel at one point. I mean, you can see they're not acting. You can see the the their eyes bulging out and their veins popping like they really did a, a, a lot of the stunt work here. Not all of it, obviously, because right. you can't you're not going to jeopardize, jeopardize an actor. Legally, you cannot do that. Right. And you're not going to halt your production, especially when it's already <laughs> going on for over a year consecutively. And you got another movie to worry about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that. But they really did do a lot of it themselves. So I'm certainly not overshadowing how cool it is conceptually, how well executed it is. But everything that leads us here and it's really no one's fault you know it's not that the writers were lagging it's that they had they had to get two movies out that's the other thing because this movie affects the third one so they have both storylines to worry about and production didn't have a choice either because they had to get going yeah eventually jack gains possession after all of this happens, of both the key and the chest, and he steals the heart of Davy Jones, hiding it in the jar of dirt, leaving the empty chest to be recovered by Jones's men. Norrington, meanwhile, steals the heart from the jar. Back on the sea, the Dutchman catches up with the Black Pearl and launches an attack before eventually unleashing the Kraken. The crew fights back and puts all of the gunpowder... Um, and rum into a cargo net and when the kraken attacks again jack fires a shot blowing up the gunpowder uh, gunpowder to fend off the kraken at this point jack has already left on a boat he was going to save himself he decided to come back and help the crew um and The thanks he gets for this is to be chained to the Black Pearl by Elizabeth, who is looking to sacrifice Jack in order to save the crew, for which Jack calls her a pirate proudly, may I add. Um, And when the Kraken does come back for Jack, he pulls out his sword to fight it off and is consumed by the beast. So... I I think she, she had to do what she had to do here. Um it's drawn out over the course of the entire movie at times 
it seems like they're regressing her as a character. But at least there's a payoff here. And the payoff makes sense. And I think part of what sells it for me here is the way that Kira Knightley played it. You mean with her jaw? I think she sold it. I, I think she sold it. Because you could tell it pained her to do it to him. Honestly, I, I don't know what is going on with her pout and her mouth hanging open. It totally distracts me from what is going on in scene. I don't know why she sort of made that choice, but the the performance is completely distracting. Um, I will give you that, though. I think it's definitely a payoff on the back and forth of the character. And, you know, she does draw a line on, in the sand and she does decide I'm going to put Will before anything else. Um, and it does set up an interesting dynamic for their relationship because obviously they haven't been together. They, they really don't even have a lot of screen time together in this film. And um, they've both been doing their own thing. And even though it's for each other, they don't know what the other one has been up to. And that's, you know, setting up your third movie. And now there's trust issues within that relationship. Okay, right. fine. That's all good. And it works for the third one as well. Right, especially because all Will sees is that she's kissing Jack, which is all a means of distracting Jack to back him up against the mask so she can chain him to it. Right, and they've sort of been sprinkling that trail of breadcrumbs throughout. And, you know, this is where, with the spinning compass and everything, it does make you realize that it was never romantic feelings towards Jack. It was just the idea of Jack and her becoming that. Um so that all, you know, they tied a bow on it, fine. Where I feel like the story starts to fall apart a little bit, um, I thought the jar of dirt was going to p- play a bigger role. I understand that it was a decoy. Obviously, if he's running around with the chest, Jones is going to know where his heart is and he's going to take the chest. Okay, fine. But what I really thought was going to come into play is that Jones cannot set foot on land except for once every 10 years. So I thought because they're technically putting the heart in the earth because it's dirt, they were going to do something with that where maybe Jones gets close, but But he can't can't actually touch the heart. Um, So I kind of wish they would have followed through with that idea. I think it would have been more effective. The other thing is that in Jack's final moments, Elizabeth realizes that he needs to go down with his ship because the Kraken is after him, not the rest of the crew, and this is their chance. So I get that they hurt the Kraken pretty badly with the gunpowder in the rum, and it disappears for a second, but it's like, why didn't it go after the rowboat? You, You had the chance to single Jack out, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I think at this point we've already established that the Kraken is... Uh, not the most observant beast in the world because somehow, some way, it didn't get it didn't get Will Turner either, um, which was sort of its purpose when it went after the ship that Will had stowed away on. But you're right; if it wanted Jack the whole time, they had their chance at him, and they missed it. No, and I understand that the Kraken has to be commanded. So if Jones is saying go after the ship, and Will is not on the ship, or Jack is not on the ship, okay, fine, but. You know, and maybe that's why they made Jack decide to be a good man and come back to the ship. But it's like, how did Jones not realize that he was no longer on it? 
Yeah. Because I'm, the Dutchman was close by. Like, you think they would have seen him going off. You would think. The thing is, Jack would never have sacrificed himself, though. Like, he went back to fight it off. But he never would have stayed to let himself be consumed to save the rest of them. Not even for the Pearl. Right. See, I thought they might play on that idea, too, is that he loves his ship so much, maybe he would have been willing to go down with it. And he's not even willing to do that. No. And, again, the CGI is really bad. Really, really bad. Elizabeth tells the crew, however, that Jack did sacrifice himself to save them all in an attempt to salvage his reputation. Jones opens the chest to find that the heart is missing. Norrington delivers the heart to Beckett in exchange for his pardon. The crew of the Pearl set off to see Calypso once again, who tells them that Jack can be, uh, can be brought back, and she tells them that they need a captain who knows how to navigate them to the world's end. And in enters the resurrected Barbosa, who asks them what has become of his ship. Great reveal. Excellent reveal. I remember when he came out at the end of the movie, and now it's three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> and there was such an audible gasp in the yep. movie theater when he came out. I remember that too. Yeah, it, everybody was wide awake at that point. And then the movie ends. And then it ends because the movie is a total bridge film. Before we jump into our uh, final review here of the of the movie, though, I do want to touch on a little bit of the production. A couple of things that stood out. We talked about um, Davy Jones and the CGI, and I stand behind the fact that I think there is too much. You made the case for his entire crew, it's way too much makeup. That's fine. If you wanted to CGI the crew, I, do, I understand they wanted to make him visually stunning. Again, they had a poster before they had a story. Um, but Bill Nye was so good, I wish they would have just put him in a traditional pirate outfit with the barnacles that they put on, say, Bootstrap Bill. You want to give it a little CGI to animate it and make the clams come to life or whatever, that's fine. But... It's it's distracting to me in the CGI, especially when it comes to the attack on the ship with the Kraken. Just like over and over again, it, it just never really redeems itself. But what's interesting here is that Gore Verbinski really had a hand in fine-tuning a lot of that computer animation. So in other words, what you're saying is that you would have rather them sacrifice the octopus design for something more like Bootstrap Bill. Yes. To, to go practical with because it. Because I love... I love Bill Nighy's performance of the character. I've never totally been sold on Jones. But there, there are so many... Like, I'm so conflicted with him, and I even said that earlier in the episode. There's so much about him that I like. I feel like I would like him so much more as a character if he wasn't totally CGI'd. Right, because the performance is flawless, but you're right. It could have been anything, any kind of, you know, if they had coral sticking out of his face or, you know, they give him the crustacean claw, if they would have played that up a little bit, or maybe even, maybe even something with the shark. 
They do yeah. have the hammerhead shark, but to make him like a really menacing shark, that would have been really cool. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, it it is kind of hard, though, to separate the octopus because what they did do with it was so cool. I mean, they they animated each tentacle and yeah. I mean for a scene like where he's playing the piano that's an enormous amount of work and then to make it interact with Will as he's trying to steal the key it really is amazing and they got the um the that scaly look they took like a styrofoam cup with some coffee residue and just superimposed that onto the tentacles and that's how you get that like fish-like scaly, look yeah, yeah I mean th- that's amazing so for that much and the design of the tentacles into the beard, it's really cool. I don't know that I would have wanted to sacrifice the octopus for something. I think there were other things that you could have done, but like the end result is so powerful. Like, do I wish it was practical? Yes, of course. But I don't know. This was pretty cool. And yes, to your to your point, too, about Gore Verbinski being really involved in it. He was in, involved heavily in the design, but he actually started out in post-production. He was really critiquing the final renderings of that look. Yeah. I, I mean, it ties in with the Kraken and all. They had the wherewithal to put makeup around the eyes and mouth of Bill Nye because they said if you needed a close-up... And, well, here's the thing. They said, if we needed a close-up and the CGI wasn't cutting it, we had to have a backup plan. Mm-hmm. So you you acknowledge that there was a chance that there was going to be fault in the visual. And while I give them credit for having a fallback plan, if you were that convinced, or I'm sorry, if you were not convinced the entire time that that was going to be flawless animation... That tells you everything you need to know about whether you should have done it or not. I get they wanted to tie it in, but I I will die on the sword. I will die on the hill that I would have preferred him to have more of a barnacle look than a squid look. I mean, they might have just scrapped the idea because they just didn't have enough time. But th- that's the other thing. They didn't have that time to gamble. Do we do A or B? They they just had to pick something and go with it. So right. I'm I'm thinking this goes back to it's just too much time in the makeup chair for the actor. They had to push through production, and if something you know if it doesn't hold up with all the water, you just can't use it. Right. Um, we keep talking about the time frame, time frame, time frame. They shot the second and third movie. They were on set for two hundred days. Now, you have been on film sets before. Could you imagine being on set for 200 days? No, I I can't imagine doing anything for 200 days. That's why I love working in television and film, because you you wrap on one project, you move on to the next thing. Um, I mean, honestly, to work on something like this, like, yeah, for 200 days, I would probably do it. But, I mean... It's exhausting to do 12 to 14 hour days on sets to begin with. I can't even imagine having to do it on location, in the heat. You're climbing hills. You're Because to what people love about this movie is the location. And yeah. it's something that you, you have to do. You can't do this in a studio. It's just not going to look right. It's, it's not going to look real. And I think that's what people appreciate so much is that it's like a historical fiction because they did put them out in these remote settings. Right. Especially the Island of Dominica where they shot with the natives, um, 
But that was a real chore for them because it was so hilly to get all the equipment in and out. They had to build their bridges. Those aren't just part of a cool looking set. The rope bridges and stuff, they're made to look like rope, but they're actually steel so that they could move equipment and get the sets up over there. Yeah, I think we mentioned that earlier when we were talking about the scene. Um, But... I, I, I wonder if some of those things are still there because they said that when they went back to St. Vincent, some of the original set had, had was still there. I think it was Kevin McNally had said that some of those sets and some of the structures that they built had lasted through three hurricanes. And then, of course, I think they lost, what was it? They lost their dock or they lost their pier that they had built right before they went to go shoot. Um, they were making, it was a man-made tank to do a lot of the, uh, you know, like the, the scenes where I think it was more in the third one, obviously where they're tilting the ship, but I think they utilized it more in the third one, but everything got wiped out in a storm. They had to start from scratch right before shooting. I think the most startling thing though here from to know going into production, the Captain Jack Sparrow costume almost had to be made completely from scratch again jack's hat is made of a rubber it's it's like a rubber leather material so that it floats in water right but we talked about how so much of the costume was really custom made when we talked about the first film somehow some way none and and i mean literally zero of the outfits that he wore in the first movie could be found or still existed three years later when the second movie came out. I don't know how that's possible. I don't either. I mean, unless I would love to think that Johnny Depp took something as a souvenir. Oh, I'm sure he has one. But that's the thing. They didn't know how big this movie was going to be. They were kind of biting their nails when they released the first one because they didn't and I think that's a testament to Johnny Depp's performance is how much people gravitated towards this film. But again, Hollywood put the stigma on it of you're making a movie based on a theme park attraction. Everybody thought it was going to flop. So I'm sure no one, it it didn't occur to anyone to hold on to these props because this movie was going to be so big and they certainly didn't have sequels in their minds yet. Yeah, I mean, they said even a lot of just like, hero swords and and weapons that even background characters were using a lot of it was just gone just lost or had been stolen or being sold on the secondary market you know you can go online and buy a screen you sword from some background character in the movie like there was just nothing left but johnny depp had so much input in the look of that character you know he's in he's in for his fitting and give me this ring give me two belts give me this give me this played such a big hand but what's most impressive to me is that he actually had his teeth sanded down and he had the gold caps put in semi-permanently that's insane i mean that that is commitment i i guess i can kind of understand that if you know you're in for two for two more movies and 200 days yeah and i mean who knows if they were putting like a, you know, almost like an Invisalign over his teeth yeah, with the yeah. gold, if it was impeding his speech, not that you could even tell because, you know, 
his performance is flawless. But if it was that uncomfortable to wear and his option was, well, I got to do this for 200 days or I can just get my dentist to give me something permanent. I think, you know, that's part of it, too, is that we talked about it last week is that he got so attached to this character and he truly loved Jack so much. I'm sure this wasn't a big deal to him to like embody Jack even more. And especially, you know, we didn't get to talk about this last week. He loved Jack so much. He would go, he would go on the ride once they they did the overhaul. And I think they did that overhaul once they decided on doing the sequels because the success of the first one had been established people you know they realized how much people loved the uh the films so why not change up the ride a little bit and i i never thought i would say that because i am such a purist and you never want to see the ride change um especially now with what they're doing with red but um I think you kind of needed to retrofit this one just because this movie, you know, we talked about the phenomenon last week. Well, the other thing, too, bears something in mind. People of our age range remember that there was a Pirates of the Caribbean attraction well before there was a Pirates of the Caribbean film. Right. If you're a 10-year-old kid going to Disneyland or Disney World for the first time and you go on Pirates of the Caribbean, your first question is going to be, where are the characters from the movie? Right. So they were forced in a position where they now, because the movie, because the franchise has been around for nearly 20 years, and it's such a phenomenon, and the characters have become so timeless, you're forced into having to retrofit the attraction. Right. But I, I love the stories of, of Johnny Depp hiding out on that ride in character and, you know, yeah. getting up as a boat is going by and now you know we've come even more full circle is that they've adjusted the character again to look like jack sparrow but not like johnny depp yeah um you're i mean even even in the avatar attraction that's a sigourney weaver kind of look alike and it's the same character but it's not sigourney weaver because especially in the age of social media Celebrities do things, and it's not always conducive to the image that Disney wants to put out there. Um, so Disney protects themselves by no longer making things that look exactly like the actors. I go back and forth with this because it's like, you know, you thought Aerosmith was a good fit for your park to do rock and roller coaster, no matter how much cocaine steven tyler put in his body and you still rolled with that now as i understand it there are plans where god forbid one of the aerosmith members does something off color they're ready to drop something else in there on a moment's notice to to overhaul the ride well if you think about it all they have to do is pull their name off the building pull the merchandise out of the shop and just shut the video down right but that's an easy fix but anyway it that's one thing I mean that's a band and other than that ride they really don't have anything to do with Disney to me if you are picking somebody to be the face of your franchise you're trusting them to uphold the Disney brand especially like I'm saying you're letting Johnny Depp on the ride in character to interact with people he did the same thing with the Alice in Wonderland premiere they had a looking glass and he would be you know talking to people on the other side of it but live in real time so it's like if you trust him to do things like that and I know he did kind of have a little bit of relationship drama 
with Amber Heard and who knows what's true and what's not. I'm not going to, you know. We're not here to speculate. No, I'm not here to speculate. I'm not going to gossip. But up until that point, and this was way after Pirates, you know, he loved the character. He embraced the character. He, he is the character. Exactly. And it's like you let him do it for that long. So let, let, let him be on the ride, you yeah, know? This is the same guy that puts the outfit on and goes and visits the pediatric wing at children's hospitals. Yeah. In character. Yeah. To give the kids something fun. I mean, listen, Disney, <laughs> Disney willingly hired Johnny Depp and Robert Downey Jr., to be spearheads of major franchises. You kind of get what you pay for when you hire somebody with a history. It's the same way if you hired Ted Nugent to write a song for one of your films, you kind of know what you're getting. There's a history and a track record here. Some guys, like Robert Downey Jr., clean themselves up for the better. Other guys, like Johnny Depp, kind of continue to step on their feet and have for 30 years. You you get what you pay for with these guys. No, and that's what I'm saying. If you trusted them enough to head up the franchise, where is that trust now? It, yeah, because remember, it's a multi-billion dollar franchise, not because of Orlando Bloom, not because of Jeffrey Rush, not because of your outstanding writing, certainly not because of your CGI, the franchise is a success because of Johnny Depp. Yeah. And I, I can sit here and I can say that with absolute certainty. He's the reason why this franchise is worth billions of dollars. It's why it's a success. It's totally on his shoulders. Because is Elizabeth Swan a timeless character? No. Is Barbosa a timeless character? Maybe. Is Jones? No. Is Will Turner? No. Is Beckett? No. Swan? No. Norrington? No. Gibbs? No. Uh, maybe. It's but it's Captain Jack Sparrow. Yeah, and and I mean, who has done all of the sequels right up through number five? Th That's right. This is the reason we go. But anyway, disregard the franchise as a whole. Let's get back to the second film. Final synopsis. It's 25 minutes too long. There's way too much back and forth. It's completely confusing if you haven't seen it multiple times. And it, I said before, it's a total bridge film. And it is in that, in my opinion, I don't think this movie has a clear cut beginning, middle, and end. This movie is a two and a half hour run on sentence. Wow. I, I will say the more I watch it, the more I get out of it. But that doesn't mean it gets better every time I see it. So there are some movies I sit there and I go, eh, didn't really like it the first time I saw it. But the more I watched it, and the more I liked it because the more I noticed. I notice more here. This movie does not get any better. All fair points. Um, admittedly, the first time I saw this, I completely wrote it off because I hated that it was a bridge film. To me... My mentality has always been, if you are going to a, a movie, you should be able to watch it beginning, middle, end as a standalone, not having to come in with any other knowledge, not needing to see the movie that came before it. You should be able to just go and watch a story play out and understand what's going on. So I 
as much of a cool surprise as it was to bring back Barbosa at the end of it. And that was, I, I remember there was that audible gasp. Everybody was so happy he was back. And then boom, the credits roll. And I was furious. I had just went through two and a half hours of excitement. Pirates is back. This is so cool. Oh my God, they're spinning on a wheel. Barbosa's back. Oh my God. And then my soul was crushed because it just ended. And I felt like you, I, I hated that it was a cliffhanger. And that's not what a film experience should be. Not when you're in the movies. Now, admittedly, years later, my mentality has sort of changed because this was really a first of its kind as far as franchise films go because now look what we have with Marvel. Marvel was... They didn't necessarily leave you on cliffhangers, but for a movie like Doctor Strange, for example, I'm like, why do I need to see this? I, I didn't really know anything about the character. I knew I had to go see it to understand what was going to happen with Infinity War and Endgame, which annoyed me, honestly, that it was like, all right, if I, I'm going to be missing a piece if I don't go watch this film. Um so I still do sort of feel that way as far as like you should just be able to go and watch it and understand the story without all of this other nonsense coming into play. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and it bothers me less now seeing what all of these franchise films has bec have become. Right. I think Even Marvel changed that mentality more than anything else. Yeah, and Star Wars a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I mean... Empire Strikes Back kind of ends on a cliffhanger. Luke, I am your father. Luke loses his hand. Though, I mean, that movie has a clear beginning, middle, and end. Right. It ends with he finds out he's his father and he loses his hand. Um, Infinity War is, as Lisa Donato said when we had her on when we reviewed live-action Lion King, that that's a Thanos movie. That's not really an Avengers movie. That, to me, is very much a bridge because Thanos snaps his fingers, half of existence disappears, and the movie ends with him sitting on a hill, staring off into, what was it, a sunrise or a sunset? Right. catching his breath. That's how the movie ends. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to reference Ghostbusters, and I'm not going to reference Batman for a change. Excuse me while I fall on the floor. I'm going to reference something totally out of left field, but go with me on this. All right. The Lethal Weapon franchise. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me tell you why the Lethal Weapon franchise works. Okay. The Lethal Weapon franchise works because those were four movies released over the course of about 10 years. They keep saying they're going to do a fifth one. They've been talking about it for 15 years. I don't know that anybody wants to put Mel Gibson in a film, but that's neither here nor there <laughs> at this point in time. They might do a fifth movie. Do we need one? No, but they're going to do it. And see, that's my point, is that did we ever need sequels to Lethal Weapon? No. But they kept doing them. And what was successful about them? The premise is basically the same. It's Riggs and Murtaugh, and then eventually Leo gets... And somebody's family gets kidnapped by a drug cartel or a terrorist group. And they have to come in and fend them off and they always kill the bad guy. And it's over-the-top action and everything gets blown up. And there's, a, there's a, a, an endless body count. And it's just funny enough because they pepper in the comedy. Every movie is almost the same, but they're fun and you pandered 
to the fans of the franchise. And that's why people kept going back for more. I can tr- I can put on ev- any Lethal Weapon movie, any one, and show it to somebody who's never seen Lethal Weapon before. And they get it. They didn't need a bridge. They didn't need an ongoing... Every story had a beginning, middle, and end. And the fans kept coming back for more because you just gave them what they wanted. I know for a lot of the creatives out there and for people that really look at this as an art form, and it is, it sounds like I'm bastardizing your craft, but sometimes you just have to give the people what they want. Which is why, at times, this franchise falls flat. If I thought you were bastardizing the craft, I'd probably punch you in the nose right now. I I understand what you're saying. Um, Where I do take issue with this movie, I mean, so to get back to my final synopsis, now that I can kind of get over the bridge thing years later, it's less egregious and looking at it on its own, I do find more and more every time that there are a lot more layers to it and I, I get more out of it every time that I, I see it. So I, I'm not writing it off as I hate this movie. It served no purpose anymore. Um, but I agree with what you said. They decided to do sequels because it was going to pander to an audience that's going to come and pay money to see more. Um so where I take issue with this movie, and it's rare that I say this, it's not with the writers, it's not with the filmmakers, it is with Disney. These pirate sequels were essentially a cash grab, and they sacrificed the story for that. They wanted to do two more. They knew they needed to get the same cast back, most of the same crew, because this was so specific. Um And in order to get those people, that was a really bad decision to do the two of them back to back. Write a second one, put it out there, let it breathe. And then when we want more, give us the third instead of cramming two more down our throats. Even even if they would have released one in 2006 and one in 2008, but instead they did six and seven. And at the time, yeah, sure. I was just like more and more pirates. You know, I can never get enough. But I had kind of talked about it last week was that Black Pearl is my favorite Disney live action, hands down. I started to fall out of love with this movie because of the sequels. But over the past two weeks that we've been doing it, I've loved being back in this world. Is the second as good as Black Pearl? No, not by a long shot. But it's slowly starting to redeem itself in my eyes. Well, we're interested in knowing what you all have to say about it, what your opinion of Dead Man's Chest is. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. And don't forget, we also have a TikTok that we launched. Not that we're necessarily going to put a review up there because you just listened to us review it here, but go find us on TikTok too while we're on the social media. News this week. National Treasure has been revived. We Talking about a franchise <laughs> that went dormant for a long time, uh, it seems like National Treasure is coming back in two forms. 
according to Jerry Bruckheimer, and this I think you said was in Variety you read this? Yeah, Disney hasn't announced it formally yet, but it was in Variety, which is good enough for me. We're getting National Treasure to Disney Plus with a younger cast, and they are developing a third film for a theatrical release. So we're going to get both. Supposedly. Yeah, I don't know if the Disney Plus one is a series or a movie, but we know that much is is true, that it's a younger cast, and then they're still trying to go for the big screen. This is a good example of great stories because they space them out well. I do not go see National Treasure for Nicolas Cage. I hate Nicolas Cage. That's not what keeps me coming back. They're good movies. But he can eat a peach for hours. Oh, God. <laughs> um, it's a Dog's Life is premiering this upcoming Friday on Disney Plus, hosted by Bill Farner. Um, who, who you know as Goofy. Yes. And the premise of this film or this show is it follows Disney people and their dogs. Disney around. dog lovers. I mean, hey, look, I, I, I'll watch it. I'm in. I mean, what else are we doing right now? I mean, I was going to watch it anyway. Give me a show about puppies, sure. Um, but the big news this week is that Hamilton is dropping on Disney Plus on July 3rd. Supposedly, they had filmed the actual Broadway production on stage of Hamilton. With the original cast, I believe. Right, with Lin-Manuel Miranda. And it's getting added to Disney Plus the day before the 4th of July. And the internet went crazy this morning when that news dropped. Um, will I watch it? Because if you yes, if you listen to the show, I have not been afraid to say that I have zero interest in Hamilton. I've slowly come around on Lin Manuel Miranda. Um, but will I watch it? I will watch it on Disney Plus because it doesn't cost me anything more than what I'm paying for Disney Plus. Would I take four hours round trip on the Long Island Railroad and $200 of my money to go sit in a playhouse to go see this? Absolutely not. But as a part of my six bucks a month, okay, sure, I'll watch it. I've been wanting to see it, but I'm very happy that I can see the original cast and not have to spend $400 on it. And I think, um, you know, it's kind of a nice nod that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda has become so much a part of the Disney family that they're giving him the opportunity to showcase this, especially when it's not a Disney play. Right. And didn't they didn't they get the um, the rights to what's in the heights, into the heights, into the woods? Well, that's his. Yeah, I, I know that. But I'm saying <laughs> isn't Disney involved in that or no, they were they they're involved in doing a screen production of Hamilton, I believe. I think so, yeah. I think In the Heights is something totally separate. Yeah. Um, it's. Are you thinking of West Side Story? Because that's no, Spielberg's, no. but that's under Fox. No. I knew Disney had somehow acquired the film rights to one of his musicals, but it was Hamilton. I wonder if they're still going to do it or if this is taking the place of... I would imagine that they're going to still do a screen release for Hamilton. Sure. They're going to double dip it. Well, we're interested, again, in knowing what you guys are most excited for, and I'm sure most of you are going to say Hamilton. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio. Email us, monorailradio at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out the newly rebranded, newly re uh, relaunched www.monorailradio.com, where you have access to every episode 
of monoreal radio. And if you don't want to sit there and listen on your computer or you're one of these people that goes running, uh, goes to the gym when they eventually reopens them, uh, reopen them, or maybe you love listening to podcasts while you're traveling, as most of us do, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. We are basically everywhere. And please, it would be uh, greatly appreciated if you can leave us a review and also leave us a review on Facebook as well. Thank you so much for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. We will be back next week to discuss Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Will it be better than Dead Man's Chest? Because I think if there's one movie in this franchise I have watched the least, other than the last one that came out, Dead Men Tell No Tales, it has to be at World's End. So this is going to be a very intriguing week for me, specifically. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.